my husband tells me to that the singing <laughs> trala while I go around the house is just <laughs> too gay. This is the Gospel of Musical Theater, a priestly look at some of your favorite musicals with your hosts, Cathedral Deans and Musical Theater Queens, Nathan LaRude and Peter Elliott. This is the Gospel According to Musical Theater. It is uh, another afternoon when Nathan and I record. My name is Peter Elliott from Vancouver, British Columbia, where I served as Cathedral Dean for a number of years and now teach at Vancouver School of Theology in I guess it's called retirement or whatever with my friend, Nathan LaRude. Yes, not, not quite retired yet. Still uh, nose to the grindstone in Portland, Oregon, where I am the Dean of Trinity Cathedral. God bless you and God bless them. And this is our continuing series on the remarkable, problematic and fascinating musicals of Alan J. Lerner, the lyricist, and Frederick they called him Fritz Lowe, uh, the composer. Uh, I think we said last time when we were talking about Lerner and Lowe that Lowe's melodies are amongst the most beautiful in the musical theater canon. Um, yeah. And Lerner's lyrics are clever and witty and smart. Um, and today we're going to talk about two musicals, one that I know nothing about and really don't really don't really have any great desire to know a lot about because I find it kind of deeply offensive in its concept anyway. But Nathan, bless him, has delved into Gigi. So a few minutes on Gigi and then uh, we're going to talk about their last uh, work, Camelot, which defined in some ways an era in uh, North American cultural life. But first, let's I mean, the gospel and musical theater. So with Gigi, I guess the gospel is right there with the opening song. Thank heavens for the world. <laughs> is, is, the, is that a gospel message or is it not? It's such a it's such a creepy way to begin a musical about the sort of the dawning of maturity of a of a young girl. Leslie Caron, I think, is supposed to be what, 15, 16? I think in various contemporary productions, they sort of upped her age to try to make this a little a little less creepy. But she's, you know, the, the first shot we have of her is very much, she looks like Madeline from the Madeline books, right? She's wearing that schoolgirl's hat. She's wearing a, a short little, she's playing ball with a couple other girls. And Maurice Chevalier comes, you know, parading down the Champs-Élysées or wherever he's supposed to be and starts singing Thank Heavens for Little Girls because little girls grow up to be women and, you know, aren't we, aren't we lucky? He doesn't, he doesn't quite, he doesn't, I mean, he is sort of watching this ball game happen and, you know, like looking not quite lustfully, but certainly with a, with a, I don't know, a slightly creepy air at, uh, at what, what's happening here. So it's not, it's not quite pedophilia, but it's next door to it. Each time I see a little girl of five or six or seven, I can't resist a joyous urge to smile and say thank heaven for little girls. Four little girls get bigger every day. Thank heaven for little girls. They grow up in the most delightful way. Those little eyes so helpless and appealing. One day will flash and send you crashing through the ceiling. 
thank heaven for little girls Thank heaven for them all, no matter where, no matter who Without them what would little boys do Thank heaven, thank heaven, thank heaven for little girls Yeah, it's an uncomfortable way to begin what will actually be, in some ways, a very sophisticated story. So Gigi is based on the uh, the novelette by the French writer Colette. I think kind of her her most uh, her best known work, certainly among um, English speaking audiences, um, about a a young girl who is kind of being groomed. I, I, I haven't read the Colette story. My, my understanding is the, the, the short story is a little more explicit. One of the interesting things about Gigi is like, how did this thing ever get past the censors <laughs> in 50s Hollywood? Because it's a story about a young girl who is being groomed by two courtesans, her, her grandmother and her great aunt, both of whom are sort of, you know, sort of notorious, well-known women who have, you know, been the mistresses of many different men and are, you know, one, I think her grandmother, at least in the film, is living, you're supposed to imagine she's pretty poor. Uh, her great aunt still has quite a bit of money and, you know, has all these jewels and is sort of training Gigi in the art of becoming a courtesan. So in the film that gets coded as like how to inspect a cigar for your man. Like how do you, and Gigi says, well, I don't smoke a cigar. She says, oh, no, no, you don't, you never smoke the thing. Your job is to like, you know, sniff it, smell it, get it ready for him so that you can just put it into his mouth and light it. And, you know, it's like how to pour tea. So, I mean, like, and I remember watching as a kid, right? Like all the courtesan stuff just went right over my head because at a certain level, it just feels like Victorian women teaching a young girl how to be a lady, right? They're teaching her how to pour tea, how to wear jewels, how to how to be a lady is kind of, and for the fifties, Kind of like very much, very much like Eliza Doodle, right? Like she, she yeah. is getting lessons in what it means to be an upper class Parisian lady. And the film kind of downplays a little bit the nature of the, um, you know, she's being trained to be a kind of a geisha in a certain way, right? Like yeah. she, you know, yeah. but then it gets pretty explicit when the the young the young man who has been kind of a friend of the family sort of realizes, you know, he, he sort of has this famous number where he's kind of walking through through Paris, you know, he's just seen Gigi in a, in a pretty form-fitting dress. He was very outraged, you know, like, get that thing off of you, you're a schoolgirl, but then realizes, thank heaven for little girls, right? Like, oh, she's she's blossomed out rather nicely. Mm. I think I, I, think I want to get a piece of this. You know, Gigi, what miracle made you the way that you are, which is, you're supposed to imagine is kind of a love song. It's really the song of a very wealthy kind of bachelor type realizing that his ward is someone of sexual interest to him and realizing that he can have her, right? Like he, he essentially can buy her. And then there's a, a very kind of odd sequence that I think is mostly played for laughs, you know, where it's like the negotiations between the lawyers, right? The grandmother and the great aunt are sort of negotiating with his lawyers, you know, like figuring out, right? What's gonna be the, what's gonna be the, the financial settlement here because Gigi is going to become his mistress. She's basically offered to this guy as his mistress. So he sits down with her and it's the only scene in the film that I, that really kind of lays out as explicitly as you can in whatever this is, 1958, you know, what this arrangement really is. And Gigi says, you know, like, well, what will happen when, you know, when I, once I've gone to bed with you, what will happen when I'm done, when you're done with me? Do I just, you know, do I go to another gentleman's bed? Do I just, I mean, kind of looking at her grandmother and right. her great aunt and realizing, is this what I'm destined for? Just, you know, to be passed from one man to another, hopefully making out financially, you know, well, as my great aunt has, is that really what I want? 
so in some ways, it's a really interesting film about kind of the uh, the very kind of op- uh, what would, I'm not really open, but the the mores of one generation, and in some ways, the much more we might even say conservative mores of a younger generation, Gigi's generation. And you're you're kind of I, I think you're sort of meant to imagine that she this is sort of her moment of coming into her own as a person with agency, and realizing I don't think I want to be a courtesan. I don't think, I actually want to be loved. I want to be in love. Now the way that gets framed in sort of mid, you know, mid-century American popular culture is Gigi wants to get married, right? So the solution to this right. is not a courtesan, a wife. Um, right. Her, the previous generation who had very deliberately said, we don't want to be wives. We don't want to be shackled with that particular set of domestic concerns. We want to be, you know, we want to be beautiful playthings on the arms of various men. We want to make out, I mean, you know, for, for the, the, the way that's kind of coded is for women of a certain generation, the life of a courtesan was the way to financial independence. It was the way to having your own control as a woman, right? You're never domesticated yeah. in a certain kind of way. And Gigi says, no, actually, that's not what I want. I want to be married. I want that, right. um, that degree of respectability. I want that degree of emotional entanglement with the object of my affection. I want him to be committed to me. I don't want to be in this weird power dynamic where when he decides he's done with me, I am sort of left on my own. So, I mean, it plays with a lot of the same kinds of class and gender and power dynamics mm-hmm. that My Fair Lady does, right? It, like, like Eliza, Gigi is sort of being groomed for something. And about halfway through the film kind of rebels and says, no, actually, uh, she doesn't do it as, as musically, as satisfying a way as Eliza Doodle does. She doesn't get a, you know, a show me or a just you wait Henry Higgins. She gets, you know, one right. scene where she sort of names the weirdness, but then, you know, basically it kind of agrees to do it, right? They go out to dinner and that's when her, you know, the, the whole kind of end of the plot is her, her ward, her, her lover realizing, oh, I don't want you as my mistress, Gigi. That's not, I want, I want to marry you. And he comes back and proposes to her and everything ends happily because they're going to get married and not be a mistress. And, um, but right. along the way, it's a very, I mean, in some ways, you know, I, I'm imagining for a mid-century audience, right? A, quote unquote, sophisticated story. It's a sexual comedy, right. uh, very French, you know, set in the Paris of the Belle Epoque. So, you know, a kind of a safety of that's a different world. It's a different, you know, and it's Vincent Minnelli at his most sumptuous in terms of set designs. And I mean, it's a beautiful film, um, but sort of designed, you know, to, to be, I suppose, safe for Western audiences yeah. in the mid-century, right? Like this is a different world. It's a French world. That's how they are over there. We would never... Um, but at the end of the film, you know, Gigi becomes kind of the quintessential American girl, right? I want to get married. I want the security of a man yeah. who's committing to me and will will take care of me. And that's... Um, well, and I, I wonder um, if that's how it functioned, that it was this sort of um, critique of European culture, sure. right? That we got things better in, in North America where the marriage trope is alive and well, whether it's in... Oklahoma, or even problematically in Carousel, mm-hmm. marriage is where you want to end up. And these European loose relationships uh, are morally and emotionally bankrupt. bankrupt yeah. there, like that. there is a yeah. kind of decadence, I think. And of course, you know, it's, it's yeah. Paris of the Belle Epoque sort of imagined through the lens of, you know, Vincent Minnelli in the mid fifties. So, I mean, like, you know, some of the sets are gorgeous, but very deliberately, I think, designed to look decadent over. I mean, there is a sort of rottenness, I think, that's sort of being imagined at the core of this very frank, uh, very European, as you say, sort of discussion of sexual values. Um, and Gigi really represents something much more, ironically, since it's Leslie Caron, something much more like the quintessential American girl. She's a good girl. 
And so she is destined right. for marriage in the way that her, her grandmother, who actually, I mean, you know, in some ways it's interesting, you know, her grandmother's Hermione Gingold in the film, who famously then goes on to play the role of uh, Mad Madame Armfelt in A Little Night Music and sings, you know, the kind of famous ode to courtesanship, liaisons, liaisons, what happened to them, you know, what, what, what's become of them, right. this, you know. So in some ways, almost a, you almost imagine that Stephen Sondheim is using her very deliberately in her role as Gigi to give voice to this, you know, forgotten way of being a woman, where to a certain degree, you know, you actually have a great deal of control, but it's by virtue of being a kind of high, high paid prostitute versus right. the, the marriage trope, right? Which, which in some ways is a, um, a much, it's a very different set of, di very different set of markers for a woman. And I think it raises a whole bunch of, just as you talk about it now and, oh gosh, maybe I'll break down and watch the movie now having, having you unpacked it in this way. But I mean, I think the, just talk about the gospel and the church particularly has really struggled with figuring out in my lifetime, the place of, of women in mm -hmm. leadership. And that has been largely resolved for the most part. And then what is the nature of marriage? Um, and also dealing at the same time, I think in both the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Church of Canada with instances of sexual abuse uh, yeah. and sexual misconduct by men against women. And we discussed this a bit in Carousel. And I think it's why Gigi, the whole idea of it just kind of irks me. Yeah. Do I have to look at this world where men have an economic power over women mm -hmm. and that gives them licensed for intimacy, sexual and emotional and dear God, haven't we moved away from that world? Yeah. And I, that's the problematic, uh, hugely problematic part. But on the other hand, I think your generation, I think other generations are and to some extent me as a boomer or whatever I am, the, the patterns of marriage are changing. The patterns yeah. of relationships are changing in ways that haven't yet calcified or solidified. It feels to me like we're in a very different world than we were in the 1970s and 80s around, around marriage, certainly eschewing any kind of sense of dominance, male over female, and all that sort of thing. But at the same time, once there is mutuality in relationships and agency, mm -hmm. then all sorts of different things are possible. And I think the church and theologically, we're still struggling with what is a theology of marriage? What yeah. is a theology of partnership? Yeah. Sorry, no, I, I rambly thoughts there. I'm glad you took us there because I, I, I've been thinking about that a lot too, you know, kind of particularly in relationship to. <laughs> we, we we began before we went on mic talking a little bit about Max Lucado and but who, who knows by the time this episode airs where that will go but uh, the phenomenon of a, an, an evangelical preacher being invited to preach from the National Cathedral and the uproar that you know kind of came as a result and um, especially sort of gay and queer people really reacting negatively against inviting a um, an evangelical writer who has said some pretty horrible things about the the fight for homosexual rights and comparing it to bestiality and incest and I mean you know stuff that we're yeah right, yes yes we've heard all this before it feels in a certain degree it's like I think mostly that's going away and then you wonder right is it, is it really or is are we just living in a kind of privileged bubble where we don't have to deal with that sort of stuff anymore but for for the last what would you say 20 years in America and in Canada and to a certain degree in the in the UK and Europe uh, the framing for churches around sexual equality has been framed 
in the context of marriage, right? Yeah. So, and, and it's been almost entirely a question of equal access and equal rights without really yeah. asking the question of, I mean, so in other words, right? Like there was a, there was a day, you, you know this better than I do, Peter, where, you know, gay men and lesbians said, we want nothing to do with your heterosexual exactly. institution of marriage. That's bullshit, that's right. bankrupt, that's damaging to women and it's damaging to men. It's about property, it's about capitalism. There is absolutely nothing of certainly theological value in this institution, but also really not social value either. Marriage is a problem. Right. And as queer people, our giftedness maybe is that by, <laughs> by, by, by force or by choice, that's not our bag. We don't have to play that mm -hmm. game. And then very quickly in, in our lifetime, in my lifetime, it shifted to, you know, the, the, the true kind of freedom for queer people will come when we have access to this thing too. So theologically, that became about access to the sacraments. Legally, that became access to the, all of the kind of institutions, the, the legal aspects of marriage, the tax implications, I mean, all of that kind of thing. But we, as a, as a church, I think, we completely shut down any interesting conversation around what what marriage really is. So maybe, I mean, you know, the, the maybe the, the the better way of framing that phenomenon is okay, well now that we've now that we've opened up access to marriage and and divorce to, to all kinds of people, whether they're straight or not, uh, maybe now is a time when we can ask this question in a different kind of way, right? What is it right. about this particular historical, biblical, theological institution um, that is worth salvaging? And what really is, you know, and in some ways Gigi illustrates this really interestingly because it is a generational gap, right? It's, it's an older generation that was living in a much more sexually frank way. You're sort of, I mean, imagine sort of like for a, an audience sitting in an American theater in 1958, right? This is the generation of the 20s, uh, the 30s, a time when women were, you know, quote unquote, sexually liberated in a way that was kind of unprecedented at its time. Uh, drinking, dancing, having, you know, casual affairs all over the place that had nothing to do with marriage, right? So the, the kind of threat that that embodied in the 20s, but by the time of the 50s, right, like we're, we're, we're entering into a much more conservative time in America, certainly in American social values, where, I mean, Gigi really, in some ways, exemplifies the 1950s woman. I don't want to right. chop my hair off, shorten my skirts, and go drinking and dancing. That actually is a makes me as much a victim of the male gaze of patriarchy of men's power over me uh, what i want is a kind of agency that i can only get if i keep my hair low and keep it curly have this kind of very feminine figure learn how to pour tea learn how to you know do everything to please my man in the context of marriage that's where i find security safety i mean always this is julie jordan and carousel right like that is actually right. how i find freedom as a woman. Now, you know, from the from the lens of the early 21st century, I think we look at kind of both of those models and say, yikes, like, you know, I, it, it's the version of the whore, right? Like either you're a, right. uh, a kind of pure image of a kind of Madonna who is really put on earth to bear children and to serve her husband's needs, or you're this kind of sexually promiscuous threat, but, you know, a, a tool to be, to be kind of passed on from man to man. Like, are those really the only two options for women? Um, and I don't really know that as a society, we've really resolved that dynamic, you know, like I think right. many women still feel to a certain degree caught kind of in that weird kind of binary. We don't quite, and now, you know, we've added the phenomenon of women in leadership, right? So what do you do with, with this new thing? You know, how do we understand women who have power, who have agency? What, what does that mean in terms of a society that's still really struggling with the question of marriage and what, what it means? Yeah. yeah. And, and fewer and fewer people, at least near the end of my active ministry at the cathedral, 
the weddings declined in my 25 years at Christchurch yeah. Cathedral between 1994 and 2019. The weddings that happened tended to be larger, more middle class, upper, upper middle class demonstrations of, of wealth and affluence, the church wedding being part of it. The gay weddings were very infrequent, actually, even though they were legal. Um, And the lived reality of most folks seemed to be a kind of serial monogamy of commitments. Mm -hmm. And was part of that because we're living longer, that the the romance that Gigi had in her own mind of the lifelong Mm -hmm. being taken care of by a male Uh, Fast forward from 1958 to 2021, it's a very different scene for women and for men, for straight people and for uh, LGBTQ folks. The institution of marriage is a very different kind of thing. And I don't think, just to your point, theologically, we've caught up with the lived experience, the church has caught up with the lived experience of people in in making relationships that are full of integrity and honesty and equality and giving each other agency, all those kinds of things. Uh, The world has shifted, as I think the world shifted in the 1950s. Yeah. Well, and Gigi's fantasy is still a very a very live fantasy, right? That I think we, you know, we, we don't always quite know what to do with it theologically because the church still kind of puts its imprimatur on it. This idea that real love means falling in love with quote unquote, the right person who will be your person for your entire life. I mean, sometimes, you know, we, we call that the monogamy fallacy. Sometimes we call it the kind of my, you know, my prince in shining armor, right? But this idea that finding the right person means settling down with them and then just sailing into the sunset. Right, that like that's that that's really what marriage is all about: finding finding your finding your partner, finding your spouse, finding your you know your perfect mate, uh, and then everything is just fine from there. And now we know from lived experience, right? Like that's <laughs> that's not how just about any marriage works. It, it marriages work. It's you know so so partnership is about a lot more than this kind of romantic ideal of never having to do any work because I find the right person and I fall in love with them and we we're just going to keep singing love songs to one another until we die. Uh, musicals don't quite know what to do with that reality. Although writers like Stephen Sondheim are very interested, I think, in probing at this question. Um, And I think, you know, as as contemporary people, we're much more interested in stories that tell a different story about romance and about falling in love and then about sort of relationships over the long haul, which musicals don't, you know, there's not a lot of musicals around long-term partnerships. We tend to be really kind of into telling the stories of the first blush of love and, um, and everything ends in a marriage. Which is a really lovely segue into Camelot, interesting. Well, which is actually, yes, a musical about you know, the long haul, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. And and I mean, it uh, written by Alan J. Lerner, who, as I think we said in our, our first, uh, <laughs> was married six times. Eight times. And, uh, eight times, eight I believe. Times. Yes, okay. Eight times. He said, his, his ex-wife said, the way Alan said goodbye was when he married you. That was yeah. how he began to say, this isn't working for me, was when he, when he said, I do. Uh, not the marrying kind, but he himself said, also not the single kind. <laughs> so yeah, a sort of serial monogamist in, in just about every capacity. Yeah, a guy who struggled mightily, I think, with the institution of marriage uh, and his own. So Lerner and Moss Hart took what was a best-selling book called uh, The Once and Future King by T.H. White, the story of the Arthur legend 
Arthur, Lancelot, Guinevere, and the whole world that surrounded the Knights of the Round Table and turned it into a musical. And Nathan, you know now that Canadians are always keen to establish our cred in anything that has to do with North American life. But Camelot had its premiere at the O'Keeffe Center in Toronto. <laughs> Only a good Canadian would, uh, would trot out that little bit of and, Well, good for you. I'm so glad. <laughs> yeah, well, it was, and it was big. I think it was the opening of the O'Keeffe Center, one of these terrible, large 2,500 seat oh, wow. uh, multi-purpose auditoriums where the opera was and the ballet and the sure. traveling shows. And, uh, but it was the Broadway cast. It was the dream cast of Richard Burton, uh, Julie Andrews, uh, Robert Goulet, Roddy McDowell. An another good Canadian, Robert Goulet. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And the original, uh, the first production was the, the first production ran four and a half hours. Yeah. Um, starting at eight, they didn't get out till almost one in the morning. Can you imagine? Um, Noel Coward said that the show was, uh, I think the quote is, longer than the Gotterdammerung and, <laughs> and not nearly as funny. <laughs> <laughs> Only Noel Coward could come up with a quip like that. <laughs> not nearly as funny. It is the story of Arthur who falls in love with Guinevere, who falls in love with Lancelot, and then Arthur, who is a little bit in love with mm -hmm. Lancelot as yeah. well. His best friend and sworn companion. I uh, Sort of Guinevere ends up with Lancelot, but then they don't really work out very well and they flee to France and Arthur is left bereft and remembers, and over to you, because this is really your musical more than mine, ends the show with the song Camelot, you know, uh, don't let it be forgot that once there was a spot for one brief shining moment. I can't do uh, Richard Burton. Camelot, Camelot, I know it gives a person pause. But in Camelot, Camelot, those are the legal laws. The snow may never slush upon the hillside. By 9 p.m. the moonlight must appear. In short, there's simply not a more congenial spot for happily ever aftering than here in Camelot. And that became emblematic of the Kennedy era mm -hmm. and the Kennedy era. And then I'll, I'll stop. Honestly, I will marked by this famous relationship between these super beautiful human beings, John F. Kennedy and Jacqueline Bouvier was in fact plagued with affairs all around it, including Marilyn Monroe. So whilst folks remember uh, Camelot, those were the golden days when John F. Kennedy brought the U.S. into the 20th century. Um, and then it all went, you know, uh, with the assassination in Dallas and all that sort of thing. But we remember these golden days. But there's another way in which Camelot kind of replicated uh, a love triangle, you yeah. know, or 
less than the ideal, as you were saying earlier, going off into the sunset Mm -hmm. with your one true partner and living happily ever after. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, almost like, I mean, we talked about this with My Fair Lady, right? That if there's a romance at the heart of My Fair Lady, it's the the longing for a three-way, right? It's it's Pickering, uh, Higgins, and Eliza. And Camelot kind of picks up that idea and pushes it actually a little bit further because there is this weird kind of menage a trois I mean, you know, that's kind of where Arthur kind of comes down, right? He's aware that his best friend and his wife have fallen in love with each other. I think the 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 musical is pretty careful around, like it's never really consummated, um, but they obviously have a thing for one another. And it's, you know, this is sort of medieval chivalry, so it doesn't really have to be consummated. Lancelot can come and stand at Guinevere's window and sing, if ever I would leave you to her and she melts into his arms. And that's really all the romance that's needed. Um, but but pretty much Arthur makes his peace with it, right? Like they, they yeah. um, he's, he's content to a certain degree. I mean, I suppose to be cuckolded, but that's not really the way he frames it for himself, right? I love, right. I love Jenny. I love Lance. They love one another. We can make this work. What Jenny and I have is as much um, a kind of a shared set of values, right? Like she's, they, they are, they're sort of, sort of co-creators of Camelot. They're co-creators of the round table. So she's not just his partner in love. She's his partner in vocation, we might say. Um, so theirs is as much a professional, but I want to say values driven. They, they, they share the same values. They're interested in creating a world where might doesn't make right, but where, where right is about truth and is about integrity. They're interested in, uh, you know, kind of promulgating this whole new, I mean, it's a very sort of, you know, Kennedy-esque vision of the world. Um, Lancelot comes into that. He is also committed to that vision. So, I mean, in some ways, what keeps them together is not anything like romantic love. It's something much more like shared values, shared commitments. So it is actually, in some ways, a very sophisticated depiction of a modern marriage, if you like, that is certainly grounded in affection, grounded in sexual uh, attraction, but much more than that. Also in a commitment to sticking with one another and moving, moving a kind of project forward because you need one another in order to, in order to do that. And, and then of course, what happens is that, you know, Mordred comes into the thing and, you know, blows the whole thing open and they, re- you know, what they, they can't do that publicly. They can only do that privately. Um, so when, you know, when Arthur's kind of, when his hand is called, he realizes by that he's, you know, bastard son. by his bastard son. Yeah. So, I mean, like this other kind of echo of Arthur's other life, right. With this, yeah. uh, this fling he had in his youth and, um, and Mordred comes kind of deliberately with the with the agenda of spoiling Camelot and everything it stands for. Um, Arthur has no choice but to, you know, bring Guinevere forward on charges of treason because, you know, cheating on the king is not just, you know, sexual no-no in the context of whatever England this is supposed to be or with this sort of a weird medieval amalgamation. But um, that's a treasonous act, right? So she is, of yeah. course, uh, taken to the stake and, you know, Arthur is hoping that Lance will rescue her at the last minute. He does. They actually don't end up together. I think the way that it, where the way that it ends is they're all suitably chastened, and Guinevere goes off to join a monastery because that's of course the option for a, a fallen woman in this right. world. And I don't remember what happened to Lance. He goes off to you know Sally around the countryside, to France or whatever. Yeah, it's. I mean, it, uh, several things that are fascinating about Camelot. One is they, in some ways, took the uh, uh, the form of My Fair Lady. That is a strong actor who really can't sing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's Richard Burton. Uh, in Camelot, that was Rex Harrison in My Fair Lady. That interesting. That's uh, that's also Louise Jordan in in Gigi, right? Of another sort of romantic lead who gets a lot of patter songs because he's yeah. not really a singer. Yeah. And then they get Julie Andrews because Julie Andrews. I mean, right. that's really all you need to say. She's she's Why their not girl. Have her be Guinevere. Um, and then Robert Goulet, who was at the time, you know, dashing and 
francophone and Canadian and mm -hmm. all that sort of stuff. Julie um, Andrews but, once said she would stand off stage and think to herself, and this tells you a lot about Julie Andrews, gosh, the back of his knees are just great. <laughs> <laughs> In tights. Yeah, that's, that's what she, that was what she was turned on by. The back of his knees are just great. Uh-huh. But when I was thinking about the score, and it's a score I love, and like you, I grew up with this um, original cast album at home and uh, can sing every song. I know all the words, most of the words. There's not really a lot of duets in it, it occurred to me. It's, uh, true. you know, uh, uh, what is, I wonder what the, no, um, what do the simple folk do? Yep, that's about it, isn't is it? This lovely thing between uh -huh. Arthur and Guinevere. It's a, it's a beautiful song. It, yeah. uh, a song of privilege, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, I know you and your staff sing it from All the time. Portland as we All do. The time. Yeah. You know, what are the, what are the people in Paris? What do the peons do? Yeah. <laughs> What do the simple folk do to help them escape when they're blue? The shepherd who is ailing, the milkmaid who is glum, the cobbler who is wailing from nailing his thumb. When they're beset and besieged, the folk not noblessly obliged, however do they manage to shed their weary lot? Oh, what? Do simple folk do, we do not. I have been informed by those who know them well. They find relief in quite a clever way. When they're sorely pressed, they whistle for a spell. And whistling seems to brighten up their day. And that's what simple folk do, so they say. So they say. Um, but beyond that, all the all the love songs are plaintive mm. songs of desire. I mean, if ever I would leave you is really an update on on the street where you live. Yeah. Yeah, it really is in a lot of ways. And then the two saw, so I mean, there's so many songs. Uh, uh, Robin Kermode, who was with us on a previous broadcast uh, podcast, talked about uh, how to handle a woman, mm -hmm. a song I've actually had a fair bit of difficulty with. Yeah, Robin loves how to handle a woman, but I, yeah. I mean, just the title alone kind of tells you all you need to know about it, right? That she's a problem to be handled. Yeah. Exactly. But the two songs I love are uh, the Before I Gaze at You Again mm -hmm. uh, and I Loved You Once in Silence. Yeah. yeah. Um, Guinevere gets some of the best, the best songs. Some of the most beautiful songs. Yeah. Um, and I Loved You Once in Silence brings to my mind the kind of We Kiss in a Shadow from mm -hmm. The King and I. This, uh, and I. And I think for queer people of a certain generation, this notion of longing and loving in shadows, in silence, yeah. uh, as it was said, you know, the love that dare not speak its name. Yeah. I think there was a certain attraction, certainly for me as a young queer boy growing up, knowing what, knowing the emotional 
undercurrent of I love you once in silence, I loved you mm-hmm. once in silence uh, means. But beyond that, there's there's not there's not a great duet. There's not a great sort of falling in love song. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting in that way. I just, yeah. when I, I mean, in some ways, or, structurally, yeah. at least the first part of it does really mimic Carousel, right? Like it's a it's a sort of prolonged series of, uh, you know, they're, they're under a tree. They have a sort of a, a meet. So, you know, Arthur sings, I wonder what the king is doing tonight as if, to, you know, to kind of introduce you to him, right? Like I'm, I'm not actually what they think I am. I'm terrified of this woman. Guinevere comes in, she sings the simple joys of maidenhood. So, you know, they both get a kind of an I want song, right? Which is, I think in both cases, like, I want a life beyond the role that my birth and my, uh, you know, my my vocation has handed handed me. They meet one another. But Camelot is the love song, right? I mean, it's the title song. But if there's a love song in this thing, it's Arthur singing to her about this magical place that we together kept I me. Mean, so they, I mean, they fall in love, kind of, yes, sure. But it's from the beginning, their relationship is marked by their mutual investment in the place, right? It's a, yes. um, that's that's the love affair at the, at the center of this thing. It's it's the round table and everything that it represents. Uh, and then of course, you know, Guinevere and Lancelot have this this thing that kind of intervenes to, to threaten it. But the, the love song at the heart of this thing, I think really, I mean, in some ways, and so Jackie, Jackie Onassis was really onto something, right? When she pulled, these lines from the show, don't let it be forgot yes. that once there was a spot, that is the center of this show. It's really right. about every every character's kind of mutual investment in whatever Camelot represents, this way of being, this, you know, in some ways it, it's, a, it's a fool's vision, right? Can the world ever really operate this way where the people who are in power use their power for good? Is that even, is that even possible? That's a question of the Kennedy administration. It's a question of the center of Camelot. I think it's a question that we we kind of confront to this day, right? Like, is there such yes. a thing as power that can be wielded for for good? Um, that's in some ways that's the that's the the fleeting love affair at the center of this thing. Um, yeah. And human human relationships are all kind of you know incidental in a certain way. Well, it is the kind of two projects that I think married couples have. One is doing a, a great piece of work together, whether that's raising children or a lot of professional couples. I know couples who are architects and they're, they practice together and they live together and uh, uh, they're domestic partners and business partners, doctors, similarly. So there's, there's that partnership. But then there's also the wild lust of attraction mm-hmm. and sensuality and sexuality that sometimes you get all of that in one package, but gosh, it's hard to find that. It's yeah. a it's gift and grace, I think, if it comes to any of us, yeah. and it uh, doesn't doesn't come to lots of lots of folks. And and there's there there can be a kind of moral judgment if mm-hmm. folks don't find both of those together. But I think Camelot kind of reveals it's not always possible to have yeah. the the romantic partner and the and the domestic business partner together in Mm -hmm. one. Um, And, you know, uh, Arthur is so sympathetic in, in being willing to accept his friend and his wife. Uh, I mean, it's, it's lovely, but I think theologically, the other, the other thing is the, the notion of the kingdom of God as Camelot. Like, I think there is this longing for a time 
when you know there is justice and peace on the earth and where people see each other as sisters and brothers siblings to each other and related deeply to the earth and all its creatures and that you know it's the vision of the book of revelation in mm -hmm. some ways the the city of god the the trees being for healing the realization of of god's dream for the earth sure. it's still an image that i think preachers like you and I and theologians hold out to congregations and uh, kind of form a theological imagination. It's, mm -hmm. it's more than Camelot, but Camelot begins to kind of get at it. It does. Although there is also a way in which it's an interesting way to critique some of the, I mean, so this is, you know, mid-century uh, Anglo-American privilege that can sometimes... Yes. Uh, get in the way, you know, so at a certain level, you know, the, the vision of the round table is a place of equality, but it's equality among knights, right? So it's equality where, I mean, it's just men at that table. And while they're, you know, the, the role of those knights is to go around defending orphans and widows, there's no, um, there's no language around upsetting those hierarchies so that maybe there oughtn't to be orphans and widows to defend, right? I mean, it, it, there's still a lot of noblesse oblige. Uh, involved yes. in this particular, so it's a very, uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's a very, what, what do you want to say, a very white people's version, a very British version, a very upper middle class. This is the vision of the kingdom of God that people in power would envision for themselves in which they are protectors and everybody else is to be protected. But there's no, there's no question of upsetting those imbalances. So there's, I mean, like there's, there's a lot of embedded privilege, racism, unacknowledged, uh, unacknowledged power at the center of this yeah. particular vision of the kingdom of God, which I don't think robs it of its potency as, right. you know, a glimmer. And that's that's the language that Alan J. Lerner uses it, right? This is a glimmer of something, a seed that is planted. Um, and the idea of Camelot is, right, this is a mythical time, but, you know, somehow this is a vision that's being carried forward and the audience is kind of being invited into, um, It's very, I, I think it's very much Alan J. Lerner's vision of the world, right? Like, this is how things ought to be. Maybe, you know, with the Kennedys, maybe we could, you know, and then that get kind of dish, gets dashed, but, you know, the vision is not, the vision is still there. Uh, that's right. kind of where Arthur, where Arthur lands. My, my life may, may be in shambles. My wife may have left me, you know, like everything, but the vision remains. And so he sort of plants it in, you know, Tom of Warwick, right? He gets him to sing the song, don't let it be forgot, right? This idea that right. um, there is, there is this, this ideal, even as imperfect, imperfectly enacted as it, as it may be generation to generation, which I think is a, is a, is a next door to a gospel vision. Um, I think it's next, yeah, be. and I thank you for lifting up the privileged white world that uh, Camelot imagines, because uh, there is no racial diversity. No, here. there's not. I mean, I'm sure there's in not. contemporary productions, you're going to have people right. of color as part of some of the Knights yeah. of the Round Table, but... but Which is, I mean, it kind of works, is, right? It's a, it's a mythical world, so why not have it be, uh, you know, I, I feel like Camelot is actually ripe for uh, gender-blind casting because it's 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 not a world that's based in any kind of real history, right? These these are Arthurian yeah. legends. It's a kind of medieval fantasy. The real Middle Ages are nothing like the Broadway 1950s. So why not? I mean, I've often thought like, why not stage Camelot in the in the Kennedy White House? Why not costume them in a mid 50s kind of fantasy? I mean, like this is a oh, world that can cool. be completely recontextualized. It's not based in anything particularly historical, quote unquote. Um, it's a medieval fantasy. So you you can transplant this world into all kinds of different contexts, yeah. I think, and make it work. I think the problem is with Camelot that, sadly, it really doesn't work. I mean, I've seen it, uh, I've seen the film, I've seen a couple stage productions, and I mean, 
uh, Noel Coward is kind of right. It, 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 <laughs> they trimmed it, an hour from it and it's still really long and boring. It feels very, even though the score, the score sparkles. Is magnificent, yeah. And uh, it's a smart libretto, but it's a, it's a lot of really talky dialogue scenes. It's, a, it's an yeah. overly, overly stuffed, I mean, in some ways, overly philosophical libretto. And I don't know if that's, I mean, I don't know if we blame T.H. White or if we blame Alan J. Lerner. I don't know who you want to blame for that, but it's, you know, they, they, Arthur is in his head for most of the show, right? Talking ideas yeah. out, you know, endless, endless monologues. And at a certain, I mean, if you've got an actor like Richard Burton, that can work. Um, but if, yeah. if, if you're not Richard Burton and the Richard Burton's are few and far between in this world, that's, oh, it's just a clunky show. And so it's never done particularly well. It had a very short, uh, comparatively short, like 500 performances or so in um, Broadway, some 200 and some in the West End of London. Um, it's been revived. Uh, Burton traveled with it for a while in uh, the late stage of his career. And so did Robert Goulet. I actually saw a production where Robert Goulet, I think later in his life, he started playing Arthur. And that was the first production. Right. Well, not the first production, but that was the first professional production I saw of Camelot was, was Robert Goulet as Arthur. Uh, he was, I don't remember really very much about it, but I can't imagine that he was anything like Richard Burton. In the, Robert Goulet was not the world's no. greatest actor. Uh, no, although he had a lovely a voice. Actor. Lovely voice. A great voice. A great voice at the time, but became kind of seedy. If you're yeah. listening, Robert Goulet, we love you. But um, I think he's. I think he's dead. I think if, if he he's okay. if he's listening, he's listening on a higher plane <laughs> and, in a, and in a and on a and on a greater shore. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I could be translated. They've done it at the Stratford Festival in Canada. They did it to reopen the Festival Theater a few years ago, and I was very excited and went. And frankly, I hate to admit this, dozed off through a large yeah. section of it just because it, you know, the songs, it comes alive in its songs and just dies in, dies the, in between, in the in between, yeah. which makes me appreciate, you know, the great shows, mm -hmm. the South Pacifics, the even the sound of music, which I mm -hmm. really don't need to see again. But whenever I see it on stage, it's like, this is, yeah, this it is works. engaging, it you know, just works. it really works. And Camelot mm, and My Fair struggles. Lady works. Yeah, My Fair Lady does yeah, work. But Camelot struggles. Yeah, um, to show that's better I, in some ways in the concept than in the actual realization of it. Um, I but think it's absolutely boy, best in its, its best in its original cast album, which, mm -hmm. you know, uh, is, is still strong and robust and Every time the month of May comes around, which is my birthday month, mm -hmm. I sing the lusty month of May for a couple of days until my husband tells me to that, that singing <laughs> Trala while I go around the house is just <laughs> too gay. <laughs> it's a pretty gay little number. It's I mean, it's pretty. Uh, The lusty month of May, that lovely month when everyone goes blissfully astray. Tra-la, it's here, that shocking time of year, when tons of wicked little thoughts merrily appear. It's May, it's May, that gorgeous holiday, when every maiden prays that her lad will be a cad. It's mad, it's gay, a libelous display, those dreary vows that Everyone takes, everyone breaks, everyone makes divine mistakes. The nasty month of May. 
I mean, you know, with sweet Julie Andrews, she's actually gone on record as saying, you know, part of the reason I, that she thinks the show didn't work is that nobody was willing to accept her as an adulteress. They were like, you know, Mary Poppins, what are you doing up there playing this like lusty <laughs> wench who's like driving a stake through the center? Like, no, she's, you know, she's she's English, she's English, English Rose. She's, you know, pure Julie yeah. Andrews, pure as a drip and snow. So she sings a lusty month of May in her crystalline soprano. And it sounds like, a, you know, <laughs> something far, far more refined than the sort of dirty version that's being explicated in the lyrics. But that's all right. <laughs> the month of yes, you may. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Gigi and Camelot. Gigi and Camelot. Uh, yep. I, I, we may approach paint your wagon in some future conversation, but we both yeah. need to study up on it. But Lerner and Lowe, I mean, in my mind, it's always kind of Rogers and Hammerstein and Lerner and Lowe. Yep, they right. sort of they you sort know. of define that mid-century way of of doing musicals. Yeah, and and some of the some of the best material from that era. Um, boy, what a what a way with what a way with tunes Fritz Lowe had, and what a way yeah. with words Alan J. Lerner had. Pretty remarkable yeah. talents. Fabulous. All Until right. Next Until time. next time. Yes, indeed. Okay. The Gospel of Musical Theater is a production of Trinity Episcopal Cathedral in Portland, Oregon. Join Peter and Nathan every other Friday right here in your podcast feed and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Gospel of MT. Learn more and support us at trinity-episcopal.org slash podcasts. See you next time.